Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel. The channel recovered the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 and 1945, and pretty much just the events that led up to it, as we have yet to really do much that's involved from 37 to 45. We're only 30 years to go, folks. We're getting there. We're getting there, slowly but surely. Yet again, you know him, you love him, Mr. Economics. Well, I hope they love me, because otherwise uh, you've been torturing your poor fans for a while. But good to be back, guys. Nice to see everybody. And uh, speaking of fans, as many of you who've been longtime watchers know, it's getting a little weird because there's kind of two podcasts going on, of which you've been part of a few uh, that are still to come out. I have a other podcast. He keeps me locked in the basement. I have no choice in the matter. So I have another podcast series, which is the Speak Easy podcast series, where we talk about still Pacific War history comes up quite a lot now and then. Uh, it could be anime. It's been a lot of Godzilla uh, movies, uh, a lot of trivia, video games. Well, not so much with the video games. We talked a little bit, but anyways, it's kind of uh, it's just a, an average everyday podcast, really. That's what it is, and that's what I just wanted because I wanted to have a normal podcast, like a weekly. And uh, it's not picking up as much as I thought it would, but I mean, I'm going to, there's still some episodes to come out. If you're an audio listener, it's probably even more bizarre because uh, most of the episodes are just me editing in really goofy pictures and like weird clips, and that's just what I like to do. So uh, high emphasis on find me at YouTube and please subscribe and comment. It's the only thing that's going to keep us alive at this point. But on other news, uh, for actually weeks or months at this point i've been withholding information because i was under an nda but i can now say something publicly uh i have written a script for a large history based youtube channel that many of you probably already know it's kings and generals and uh, the episode in question is actually uh, the battle of toronto and you can go check it out on their channel it's, uh, it was really fun to do. I've had like an incredible time and uh, it's been a unique experience and who knows what the future may hold. But I just wanted to let the audience know that big things are awaiting. Needless to say. All right, so this episode. Yeah, we're finally getting into more conflict and uh, we have a player that we've kind of been ignoring, a big player that we haven't yeah. talked about a lot in the past and that's Russia. The Empire of Russia. So uh, as everyone knows, these podcasts follow uh, the episode series on my YouTube channel. So the last episode would have been the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. Also known as Japan, Russia. Pretty much. Something like that. Actually, that's a great way to look at it. I can even edit in. There's like this one cartoon, you know, the propaganda they had back in the day. And they have the Tsar's head like an anvil. And then the Japanese just smashing it with a hammer. <laughs> it, it's really, it makes for that's a good... fantastic. Yeah, so it makes sense. 
But uh, the audience will probably also realize uh, upon watching it's a bit different than my other stuff. Uh, this is because I used to have my girlfriend edit most of my um, animation stuff because I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I've taken charge to try and learn more and uh, this is my attempt at trying to better my material. And it uh, came out, well, uh, like I said to you, pretty fast. I, I spoke way too fast and I'm, I realized a lot of it was probably jarring. But um, the reason why the episode was done the way it is, is um, if you are very interested in the Russo-Japanese War and you look on YouTube uh, for any content on it, you'll notice that uh, no one touches most of it. They only focus on uh, the Battle of Tsushima which is one of the greatest naval battles in human history, and perhaps uh, the Battle of Mukden or the Siege of Port Arthur. Other than that... They don't touch any of the smaller conflicts, the nothing. side stuff, nada. 90% of the actual war goes completely untouched. I don't know this for a fact, but I might be the only YouTuber who just tried to get almost every battle. And I didn't get almost every battle. I uh, probably missed out about, I think, five or six, but there's just no way. I, I didn't want to make another... 45 episodes, episode, like yeah. my Opium War episodes, and yeah, but, uh, and then I tried to speak at, uh, the only way to express it is at the speed of Ben Shapiro, basically, and I realized after my grueling experience recording it, it's like, oh god, it's really fast, I don't know if I can even put this out, but I did. I, I will say it, and I said it to you before, but I will say it in general, I've always been the guy that has trouble following those types of historical videos because you're just rattling off names of generals and ships yeah. way too fast for me to follow. The fact that you put a few animations into this one to really show which side is attacking who, who's going where, helped a lot. And hopefully it helped for you guys, the, the, the listener too, who aren't audio listeners strictly. Oh, and just, um, you know, just to further the point, a lot of the maps... Unfortunately, the only maps I could find in some of the niche battles were only in Russian. So I had a hell of a time trying to figure out everything because I'm not fluent. And of course you have Google Translate, but these are images and it was pretty difficult. And by not fluent, he means his Russian's even worse than his Japanese and his Chinese. Privyet. Yeah. Kakzilla. That Congrats. That's two Stutter. words you learned from any Stutter. movie ever. Dasvidaniya. Uh, Devoy. It's about it. Yeah. It's all so, you need. So, uh, after we had somebody correct his Japanese pronunciation, if we have somebody that liked to work on his Russian, please feel free. Oh, I, I got a lot of that back in the day before the Pacific War Channel when I did uh, Russian snipers during World War II, and I mispronounced a lot of their names, which is probably punishable by death in the old Soviet Union. Most likely. So, let's get into this one, because I actually found this one a bit interesting. And by a bit, I mean a lot. Uh, so this is one where Russia, like I said, it's one of the biggest superpowers now in the world at the time being. Yep. Um, but yet we haven't really talked to them. We haven't really talked about them a lot. Um, yeah. Their production during this 1900s, I was looking into it, is massive. They're probably number one in the oil trade in the world. Their industrial production, especially heavy equipment, is again one of the tops in the world. And like you mentioned, they're off the... The cusp of the fur trade so money wise they're doing pretty well yep. whereas japan we were looking at some numbers before the episode i came into this with let's say a much smaller wallet and probably half the population and military force than russia did yeah you know. and yet they're on the offense japan is on the offensive the whole time they just straightforward and you know 
for those of you who are gamers out there, press W and just... Uh, Leroy Jenkins, down mid. Yeah, exactly. Tyler One, raging right through. Yeah, th that was it. They just went right for it. Very, very f seldom in this conflict did Russia actually launch a counterattack. They were on their heels the entire time. And while they did win some battles and inflict more casualties in some circumstances, it seemed like they didn't have a chance. They were just crushed all the way through. So... And I apologize if there's any specific Russian historians who might have some different opinion or know something I don't. I'm going based off the episode that I saw here. But Yeah, you know, and uh, I immediately realized after finishing the episode, I just, you know, no fault of my own. It seemed like I took a Japanese side in all of this and my perspective. I mean, it is the Pacific War. The Soviets are going to be more of a minor player down the road, so I wasn't specifically looking into the Russian side of it as much as I could have. Um, but when it came down to it, there was two very different plans of attack. Uh, the Japanese, it was pure tenacity. They were completely outnumbered almost every single battle they're on the offensive by the way they never fight a defensive uh, battle and almost there's no circumstance where they're defensive it's always offensive they're probably about half the numbers as the russians or two-thirds which is against war doctrine you're supposed to have almost like three times the number of the enemy if you're on the offensive because they're defending a position but the russians chose from the very beginning which was the right choice to fight a defensive war because, as I explained in the episode, they have the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which actually is pretty fragmented, so it takes quite long. I think, I think I found somewhere it's like five months to actually traverse it, so they could get a godly amount of units to come and help them, of which this, the, not the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire has a population of something like, I don't even know, 90 million or something it's, yeah it's we saw crazy. around 90 to 100 million somewhere in there it's a crazy number and japan only has about half of that population so numbers are always gonna be on the russian side uh the russian empire has three navies uh, mm. not not just that i think all of their navies separately are bigger technically than the uh the japanese imperial navy so mm. this is kind of a ridiculous fight and you know the audience is seeing this like okay but the distance like this is in the backyard of japan japan's got kind of home field advantage almost yeah and yeah it's true but you have to also remember that the russians had fortified uh, port arthur particularly it's incredible uh, i can put photos in it's uh this is terrifying this is one of the most heavily fortified places that you could have ever attacked and the japanese were butchered when they went into this this is Basically, this is World War One before World War One. No one knew what machine guns could actually do to the human body. Well, Port Arthur was not only one of the spots that took the Japanese the longest to take, they took some of the heaviest casualties taking it. But the one thing I did notice, and especially, your, again, your diagrams help with this, uh, because of the placement, it almost seemed like, even though Russia had such a large navy, a big portion of it seemed to be kind of trapped in the bay of port arthur around that area yeah and they were trying to get out and the japanese just kept sending fleet after fleet after fleet after them and they couldn't really go anywhere that was one of the first big naval battles you were talking about well basically they had two two, two ports one's a cold water port which means it can't be operated the whole year round and right port arthur's a warm water so they had a lot of ships that were at vladivostok that's the cold water one all the diagram probably in the episode edited in up here and then they had the the bulk at port arthur so the japanese of course they don't want them to merge to mm -hmm. attack them which 
that was a very a real thing that was going to happen. The Russians probably were going to attack the Japan first. So Japan, as they did in Pearl Harbor, surprised attacked them at Port Arthur, and really knocked them up a bit. It was impressive. Yeah, because that's before any of the the, the land battles took place. But before uh, they even declared war. But 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 they literally cornered the Russian navy, and even though again the Russian navy was so big. Uh, they seem to have the upper hand there. Uh, not only surprised, but like I said, just always on the offensive. And you made a big point in the episode about Russia overestimating Japan's size, probably because Japan kept coming at them. That they assumed Japan's army was much larger than it actually was. Yeah, a lot of the, for the land battles, a lot of the commanders had just assumed that uh, the numbers of the Japanese were probably double what they were, just because war doctrine dictates that you're supposed to have double to not three times the amount to take an offensive position. So when the Japanese are just storming down the middle, which happened a lot, tenacious commanders on the Japanese side doing some craziness here, gambling, horrifyingly. The Russians just assume, okay, there's probably another three times behind them coming. We, we need to take, we have to get back to the other defensive lines. It just keeps happening over and over. And it's uh, it's the land commander, Kiropatkin, who devised this whole defensive strategy where he was going to slowly get all the way back to Mukden, where eventually the reinforcements would come back. And mind you, the reinforcements did, they were en route and they were going to arrive. This war was not technically... Yeah, it's a, it's a Japanese victory, but if you look at it, the Russians, if they held out longer, they eventually were going to overwhelm and take that land fortification. Though the ocean was definitely completely in the hands of the Japanese at that point. Yeah, but that is the beauty. As much as it's a longer route, that, uh, again, Russia just had the numbers, and I think they had the wallet backing, that if they had kept pushing forward from the land, they eventually would have just overrun the Japanese, I would think. And since you are all about the economics, I tried to fish some numbers. So what I found is I wanted to look at these players. When they came into this, what were they holding? So what I found was that the Russians had a gold reserve, an incredible one, of 106.3 million pounds worth. Whereas the Japanese came into this with a measly 11.7 million pounds. Both nations had to... Um, Take, they had to borrow money from other nations, whereas Russia took uh, almost everything from France. So France was the major benef beneficiary, you call it? Benefactor. Benefactor. Uh, 800 million francs was given. That's about 30.4 million in pounds. And then uh, Germany would eventually hand over uh, 500 million marks, which is ironic since, as I said in the episode, this whole war arguably was caused by the Kaiser of Germany, who was just egging on his cousin, saying, hey, you are the white savior. And the great yellow peril is out there and it's only Russia that can save the rest of the world from the hordes of Asia because the Japanese officers will command the Chinese and they're all going to get together and just defeat all of Europe. By the way, this uh, just before this war happens, this is the, the start of this racist movement that goes on all the way past even World War II. It's the, the yellow peril idea that basically all of Asia will just combine itself and become the superpower which would uh, just kill everybody in Europe and take over the world, which is bizarre that that's what they think was going to happen. I mean, yes. Bizarre thought, but at the same time, if Japan and China had gotten together when they were both peak of the world. Terrifying. Absolutely. You know, we're talking again before the... Uh... It, China's capabilities were enormous, but like we said, even, and even during World War II, China was not really unified. They no, never were. Not. 
And if a country like Japan somehow broke that mold and got some kind of national unity for China and made them an industrialized power, China would have been a war machine pretty much with one of the greatest military thinkers of their day, the Japanese, who innovated a lot of stuff. It would have, yeah, there's some legitimacy. They maybe, maybe, maybe it could have happened. Yeah. But like, I think we're a few years too late because China was already fractured by then. Yeah. But, uh, and that's something interesting that we'll, you touched on in the episode we can get into a bit later is the fact that I love how the alliance has kind of switched here where in the Russo-Japanese war you have Germany egging on Russia to go after Japan. And yet by the time you get around to World War II and the sour taste that Roosevelt left with Japan... And it almost ends up going... Well, it, it does end up going the other way. Two Roosevelts, too. Teddy Roosevelt yeah. starts this grievance, and then it's FDR. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that, yeah. So Teddy Roosevelt is kind of like the... Uh, he's Satan in, uh, for Japan after this war because basically they feel like he, he personally stole victory from them and the rewards, and now they're going through bad times. And then it's another Roosevelt when World War Two hits. That's interesting. Yeah, and... Let's be fair. Stole their rewards. I mean, I think Japan came away from this pretty good. The original, you even mentioned in the episode, the original offer was that they would leave Manchuria to the Russians yeah. as long as they could take Korea. By the end of this, they have Manchuria, they have Korea, they have all the other concessions. By the way, Manchuria... And, the, and they're coming away from it crying like they lost. Uh, like the, they got screwed. For the audience, just to be aware, because the, these are like... A lot of us Westerners, and even the time period, what does Manchuria mean? Manchuria is basically kind of like like the Ukraine, we would say, during World War II. It was the breadbasket of Asia. It had so many resources. It was a very large area. So much value. During World War II, Japan was actually... The reason why Japan surrendered, and I know this is going to be controversial for a lot of you probably American listeners, maybe you haven't heard this... Japan surrendered because the Soviet Union had basically invaded Manchuria. For a long time during World War II, Japan knew that they were going to have to surrender, and they were just trying to get the best deal, as anyone would. Uh, the bombs were going off, and basically Japanese high command had no idea that they had even been hit by nuclear weapons because the information didn't travel fast enough. But they had already been like looking at the surrender terms. But it was the Soviet Union just completely destroying them in Manchuria, which freaked them out to just immediately surrender so they could somehow hold on to the biggest point of resource area that they had, which was Manchuria. And uh, anyways, yeah, it's very important to them strategically. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, I thought, like usual, we, we usually do like a brutal summarization, but this is such a big episode. It's, it's too hard to go. We gotta, we have to watch the episode to see all the battles. Yeah, and Believe me, folks, you're not alone. I don't remember them all either. But, but uh, uh, you know, I, I thought, like, just to explain, like, why did this war happen in the first place, right? Because it, it is rather confusing for an outsider who has no background information on this. Like, why did the Empire of Russia all of a sudden fight the Empire of Japan? And if you look back at our older episodes, it really comes down to the First Sino-Japanese War and the Boxer Rebellion. During the First Sino-Japanese War, which is very reminiscent of this one, fought in many of the same areas, Japan um, had taken the Liangdong Peninsula, Port Arthur is right there, and they thought that they were going to hold it. They were told that they should not hold it by what is the triple intervention, which Russia was a member. 
And as soon as they left, because they knew that they couldn't really do anything against these Western powers, who took Port Arthur? Russia. Russia. And that was a really sly and coy move. Then we have the Boxer Rebellion, in which Japan is allied with Russia, and actually both of these nations are the ones who really lifted the most weight when it came to quelling the Boxers. Mm -hmm. What happens? Russia gives kind of a bullshit excuse uh, as to they're defending the railroads in Manchuria, and they put like 100,000 soldiers in the area. And they tell everyone, oh, well, once this is all resolved, they will leave, because this is a, another country, right? And yet, they, they stayed. don't. Now you would think, well, what does this have to do with Japan? Strategically, this is a threat to Japan. Japan sees the Korea Peninsula in this area as like, this is the landing stage for any invasion force that will attack Japan, like the Mongols in the 13th century. This is where they're gonna come from. So Japan looks at this and they say, we can't contest the Russian empire because they're terrifying. So how about we give them, you know, we're gonna negotiate with them. You hold on to Manchuria, just stick out of Korea. We'll have Korea. Pretty fair. Which was a fair deal, to be to be honest. Yeah, it was very fair. Because, I mean, yeah. as a, for Japan to right away concede Manchuria, which, like we said, was one of the most lucrative areas. They wanted it. So, like, they had, they uh, had their of, eyes Of on course it, yeah. they did. But what I'm saying is for them to offer to concede that already seemed like a pretty fair offer. Yeah, and yet... Japan got yeah. slapped away. I don't even go into detail as to like the negotiation process, which I, I don't know so much myself. I don't specialize in this. But uh, what I read, it was ridiculous uh, how the Russians came to the table. They never made any attempts at real negotiation. It was because, like I say in the episode, the Tsar is telling the negotiator, you know, don't even give in to them, like treat them like shit, this and that, because he's being egged on by his, uh, his cousin, uh, Kaiser Fikhem. And he really does believe that he's some kind of mythical kind of defender of Europe at this point. Like, he, he actually mm. believes some of this weird <laughs> garbage. And uh, he's basically poke, poking the bear, as we would say, even though it's the Russian Empire doing it. Yeah. So he's looking for a fight. Really is. And uh, they basically slap the Japanese in the face. And they're like, you know what? We're going to have this 39th parallel, like you said. But, you know, we're going to do whatever the hell we want in Korea. But you stay the hell out of Manchuria. Which... I mean, come on, like, in negotiation terms, like, that doesn't make any sense. This is very stupid and insulting. Yeah. And to be honest, I think they kind of paid for it. But mm. uh, they brutally paid for it, I should say. Both countries were financially bankrupt by this, but which country underwent a communist, almost communist takeover in 1905? That's, it's kind of the big thing that happened to Russia. This, this unbelievably, like, we're, we're, we've always been talking about the nail in the coffin of the Qing dynasty. Yep. which is coming. This was the nail in the coffin of uh, the White Empire Russia. Because as we all know, they will go through a communist revolution during World War I. Uh, but as people might not know, there was two revolutions. One starts in 1905, it fails, and then there's another one. Yeah, but the, almost like a test of the waters, you know? It was seeing... Uh, almost like where, where, a lesson could have been learned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and again, egged on a bit by Germany, but uh, let's get into how this kind of bleeds into World War One, even though that's not strict Pacific War, but this is, you know, we're, we're moving forward in the years here. Yeah. So, like you said, Roosevelt was a big part in kind of the endgame negotiations of trying to get a ceasefire, and... He was seen as one of the greatest allies by the Japanese people, because just before this war began, military advisors and everybody, if you're giving betting odds... 90, 99 out of 100% chance 
Russia's going to destroy the, the Japanese. Mm -hmm. The only only few people who actually said, you know, there might be something over here on the Japanese side, Roosevelt was one of them. So Teddy actually, he, he I, we'll call it he was sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And he believed in them. And he made a lot of moves to try and help the Japanese cause, of which there was a lot of financing by the United States and us truly in Canada. We were one of the people that <laughs> lent the money. And we'll say that he was seen as an ally. When they had to have a negotiation between the Russians and the Japanese, who both wanted to go to the negotiation table at this point, the Japanese chose uh, Teddy because they believed he would treat them fairly. Now, as the war went on, Teddy looked at it, and after hearing reports, he realized, wow, they're a very serious threat. America has interests in Asia. America has interests in the Pacific on many islands. Japan, if unchecked, could threaten that. Hmm. So Teddy, he tried to do what he had to do to quarantine Japan. And that ended up in the ports, uh, the Portsmouth. Is it Portsmouth? Oh my god. Yeah, I think that's the place that they were at when they did this negotiation. Ended up in a treaty that was um, not favorable to Japan. Uh, it ended up in the Hiyabaya riots and terrible anti-American things occurred for years after and they were burning stuff and everybody in the streets was rioting. The Prime Minister lost his whole, his whole cabinet. They lost their jobs. They got kicked out. And uh, there was a general feeling that uh, who's the boogeyman? Who's the villain that did this to us? Um, it was Teddy Roosevelt personally and the American people. From this point on, who was one of their greatest allies and someone they respected, helped them modernize, they worked alongside the Americans. Now they, they were number one enemy. Most war, almost all the war plans from this point on from the Japanese perspective are the, the threat of America. So Wow, so that's a full 180 there. Ironically, before this, the biggest threat was always Russia. It has always been Russia because Russia was just such a big, you know... Well, not just that, but kind of in their own backyard, too. And guess who becomes their greatest ally? Russia. Japan, and I know it's going to sound weird, Japan and Russia, they form a lot of interesting packs and uh, armistices and stuff during the interwar periods between, like, now and what will be World War II. And they get pretty buddy-buddy. And there is some major border conflicts that everyone knows about just before World War II, but... It's funny how things shift. Yeah, that seems like the kind of partnership where it's beneficial to both sides, but you're kind of always looking for that knife in your back and when it's yep. going to come. Russia withheld an entire, uh, the Siberian core famously in World War II because they always thought, oh, the Japanese might attack us at any point. So they always were like, hmm, they might do it. But yeah, uh, yeah for World War I, uh, God, it's so much to set the stage. So basically the Russo-Japanese War literally and i say literally shocked the western world uh this is the first time it's going to sound funny to probably younger audience members this is the first time a non-white people defeated a white people in modern warfare of course in ancient times this was happening all the time but this uh this really shocked western europe and they um they didn't take it lightly japan was regarded as a great power but in asia world war one japan will receive the actual title of great power in the world amongst all the other great powers but will not be receiving racial equality which is an important thing that will happen later but this doesn't happen right now so the russo-japanese war now has asia dominated by japan japan will brutally colonize and occupy korea which they've already kind of done and they're going to get into manchuria and they're going to invade manchuria and they're going to do all sorts of stuff yeah you, 
it, it's going to be, that's their sphere of influence. Russia has not been completely taken out, but Russia's now kind of more on the fringe side. It's, uh, the balance of power has been upset. Britain is still a great ally to Japan, although after World War One that'll change a bit, but until World War One, best of allies. Still trading, uh, a lot of military stuff, and uh, a lot of packs. Yeah. It's, it's weird how much that flip-flops back, flip back and forth, just just in that, you know, war, between the Russo-Japanese War and the World War II period. Well, there's um, a lot There is a lot that's going to happen. Actually, uh, I, I've already, I haven't edited it yet, but I've uh, made my episode on the Xinhai Revolution. Uh, 1911 Revolution is also called in, uh, in China. That's the end of the Qing Dynasty, which is like, I, I, I can't even remember the number. It's like 60 revolts that happened by different groups trying to overthrow the, the Jin government. Or China. Of, of, of or, which Japan's or, or funding. China. Japan funds most of these groups. And uh, it's it's reminiscent of what's going on. We're going to have a revolution in Russia which forms the communist, the Soviet Union, by the just at the cusp of the end of World War One. That's basically what's happening. For Japan, it's... Um, they basically got carte blanche in Asia. And in World War One. They're going to completely abuse that, and they're going to be the greatest victor of the war. A lot of people don't know this. World War One. if you look at who got the most, Japan's the top. Because they just steal a bunch of, well, steal, they claim a bunch of islands that previously were owned by Germany. They take over little pieces of China. They get all the stuff for basically free because no one can contest them in the Pacific. Their navy by this point is just destroying everything. Because let's not forget, the, Rus the Japanese navy didn't just beat the Russian Navy down. They acquired a few more ships, and they acquired experience, they acquired prestige, and they acquired a necessity to fund the war machine, because everybody in the government's like, wow, war can pay dividends. We should probably invest in the Navy. Yeah. But that's the other thing, is after they beat down Russia, there wasn't really anybody left in the world that could rival them in a Navy at that time. No. When no. you get around to World War One and Two, people start showing up, but it's 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 no nobody has even close to that amount of power. Well, of course, the United States and Britain could, or like let's if France some for some reason France wanted to come and do it. Yes, they they could attack Japan and possibly win, but more or less Japan is in a very secure and comfortable mm. position, and they are finally being regarded as a great power. And with that comes the end of the unequal treaties, which I don't know if I mentioned the episode. The unequal treaties, which is just an ambiguous term for like these trade deals that they did with all these countries when they were forcefully opened, they're basically being taken away. Britain has completely taken it away. Most of the countries have to like agree with what we would call regular trade terms with Japan, but China is still under them until for a while, well, a long time. Yeah. Well, we can talk about it more in the next episode, but kind of seems to me that might be a big reason why Japan was funding a lot of the rebellions in China is because they've now become the big dog at the Asian table and they kind of want to keep China they, 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 they want to keep them under their boot so to speak well here I'll put a little tidbit information I found this pretty funny I don't go into it in the episode which will come out God knows weeks from now one of the groups that funds a big uh, revolt is uh, the triads and the black dragon society Kano for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Anyways, uh, they end up funding some of these insurgent groups, of which Sun Yat-sen is part of, to overthrow the uh, the Qing government, specifically with the aims of claiming the Manchu homeland, which is Manchuria, 
because they were under the belief if we overthrow and help the destruction of the Qing government, maybe we can take Manchuria, Japan, Here and we then go again. whoever's in control of the whatever China will be at that point will say, okay, we're going to play nice, you get that, and I will take what is this of China. Kind of happens. Doesn't actually happen that way, but it's interesting to know, and I didn't go through the rabbit hole, that the triads were very much involved in this, so it's, it's pretty cool that horrible and cool <laughs> like a mafia was uh, deeply involved in this yeah, yeah. a lot of financing uh, from japan mm. into sun yat-sen's uh, movement a lot of canadian money too a lot of canadian money in this even in the russo japanese that's the only way. time in the in the world anybody will ever say canadian money helped something and i say canadian money it's it's uh, what they, they call it oversee like particularly when it comes to the Xinhai revolution it's overseas chinese people who are all over the united states and canada that are funding like this uh, yeah. this thing because you just want a better China, because it's been horrible for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I wanted to touch, because I know that we're, we're drilling through this episode, is I don't actually talk about this in the episode. It's like, okay, Japan on the land is completely outnumbered, yet they win all these battles. That's crazy, but it's understandable. But when it comes to the Navy, how is Japan able to win basically two major naval engagements against forces that are not just bigger than them, but they arguably were stronger than them. Let's be honest, if you look at the numbers, and I'll probably edit it back up, the Russians have an unbelievable amount of old, but some modern battleships, and the Japanese don't. The Japanese were really outnumbered. They had smaller destroyers and torpedo boats, and they had a lot, but they were outgunned. And I really wanted to look into this because I don't specialize in naval operations. Like, I don't know all you know the nuts and bolts of it. But what I found was interesting, and I, I looked it up and I researched it, and I even found a way to kind of explain this to someone dumb like me, <laughs> or the audience at this point. How did they win? And what it came down to was a few factors. One was what we call spotting. We actually both play World of Warships, so you might understand this. In terms of World of Warships, this makes sense. This was old school. So you shoot a shell, and you can tell where it lands because of a, a splash in the water. That's the analog old way of doing it. So basically you would say, oh, it landed there. And then you'd go to the guy who's shooting the gun and you'd be like, okay, it landed there. So make this degree Two degrees angle. left and yeah. yeah. So this was a, a new modern thing that was developed by the British. And you can see it in the clips I put. It's kind of like a communication system where they're, they're basically like screaming into these like pipes that go down to the gunners. So there's a guy really high up who has a, a you know, an eagle eye view. And he's just like telling all the gunners and he's right beside the commander of the ship who moves the ship. Because it's important to know, this is a moving ship. You have to know the speed you're going to be able to, this is all math. Uh, the Russians, not that they didn't have this, but this innovation was kind of like done by the British more and the British were training the Japanese. So the Japanese were at the forefront of this. So they had what is called like kind of like an, a, a large case communication system where one person would just tell the gunners how to do this. And it was just much more efficient because the guy who's at the top would just look and spot and tell the people at the guns like what to do. And if there's anyone who knows like naval battles at this point i'm probably butchering this i'm probably a moron who doesn't know what he's talking about but that's from what i read and i understood that's what it was on top of this another world of warship reference uh the japanese were using high explosive rounds which weren't used by the russians the russians were using armor piercing rounds the reason being that high explosive rounds were unruly and there was like there was problems with the chemical equation and how to use them but the japanese had secretly figured out how to beat this 
They use this very sophisticated chemistry thing with this two types of these fluids and stuff. Anyways, it's this whole other thing. But what's important about high explosive rounds is they blew up on the water too. So when you shot around at the water, if it's an armor piercing from the Russians, it makes like a little splash. You shot a high explosive and missed, it made a big boom. So for the spotters, it was so much easier to see where it's going. Mm -hmm. So they could easily pinpoint from far distances. So the Japanese from far away, unbelievably more efficient at aiming than the Russians were. So the Russians might have had the capability, but they didn't have like that expertise mm -hmm. to shoot back. And as we see in this episode, it really, it came down to that. Because the Russians should have absolutely battered the Japanese. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think a big part of it is what you said at the beginning, too, where in the first naval battles, even though the Russian Navy is so big, they had them divided. Yep. They had a big part of it completely trapped in Port Arthur, where you even mentioned they tried to escape at some point oh, and couldn't get through. Too. And... Uh, and even near the end, after most of the land battles, after Port Arthur was lost, and after, the, sorry, not not Mukbang, what's the name of the, the other city they lost? The, the big one. Mukden? Mukden, thank you. It's the last, the, it's the yes. most bloody battle. Oh. But after that was lost, and the Russian fleet is trying to flee, yeah. you said their ships were heavily damaged, and they couldn't keep up speed-wise with oh. the Japanese, which made a huge difference. Those, that's for the last naval battles, obviously. To explain, the, the Russian... So basically, um, Russia had a Pacific fleet, which got destroyed in harbor by the guns at Port Arthur that were supposed to protect it, because the Japanese just won the land battle and then named the guns on the ships and then destroyed them in harbor. So Tsar Nicholas and... Uh, admirals basically had to take what was Atlantic fleets, two of which one was in the Black Sea and one was uh, in the Baltic Sea they combined kind of around where Madagascar is and then this new Pacific fleet which was very impressive came and as you said it had to go through the Tsushima Strait to try to get to Vladivostok where there were still ships Still, they, they there was a minor naval battle about Vladivostok, and I don't talk about it because it's just a little bit insignificant. There's just a few ships that get hit, but there was more crucial ships that could have overwhelmed the Japanese. And like you said, this entire trip, which is incredible, I can't say it enough. There's a story behind how quickly they did this, and they they it's impressive because I don't mention in the episode. In this day and age, you need coal to move these ships. And one of the major players in the entire world that has all the coaling stations is Britain. And what did Britain say to Russia every time they went to a coaling station? Get out of here. Britain not only did that, Britain had uh, a sail for two years that was going on for two major battleships that was supposed to go to the Empire of Russia. And then they all of a sudden sandbagged the deal and they said that something went wrong. And they secretly sold them to Japan at a less lucrative price. So Japan ends up with these two other ships all of a sudden, and yeah. So Britain was uh, Britain was a real, real good schemer during little all this. Little snake, little snaky snake. Yeah. So because the ships were so not well maintained, but mind you, they made one of the quickest journeys across the Cape Horn of Africa and going through the Swiss. Can it's it's crazy how they did this. For all intents and like it's an incredible journey, but they ended up being a much slower than they should have been because of lack of maintenance. They. They rushed over to it, and the Japanese had just a few knots on them. But that makes all the difference when you're trying to, and I say it in the episode, 
like you said, 37,000 times crossing the T. So it's the famous, you know, you have two ships that are parallel and you're like shooting like pirate ships like here and there. And then you cross the T, you get up and then all of your, you know, your broadside guns can go onto the ships, but only their forward guns can shoot at you. We both play World of Warships. We know exactly what this is, you know. Been on the receiving end of it many, many times. times. It sucks. And uh, for the audience to know, I actually don't play the uh, Japanese Navy. I, uh, I play Russian DD. <laughs> Oddly enough, of all things that I play in World of Warships. I haven't played in a while, actually. I feel bad about that. Mm. Mm. Makes one of us. Please sponsor me, Wargaming. I need the buddy. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but yeah, so in the end, the, um, the Japanese, just like the land battles, they beat an enemy that for all intents of, you know, intents of purposes was bigger and stronger than them. Similar to what happened in the first, you know, Japanese war, although yeah. that was more about the Chinese on the ships just not knowing how to use the ships properly, even though they had, and they were outdated battleships, but the, for the Russians, pretty competent command pre-innovative uh another thing that turned the tides for the japanese is this was the uh, the invent like this was the new age of um radio so this is one of the first times that radio was used by naval commanders and both sides had radio technically the big difference was the japanese had seen radio waves used by naval commanders in britain and instead of just trying to take the technology uh, they built it themselves so they went home they made their own radios and then they figured out everything the Russians simply bought their radio tech from the Germans, and it was a lot of it was in German, so the Russians didn't actually know how to use it properly. So the Japanese were just much better coordinated when it came to the Battle of Tsushima. It, it came down to you know simple things like this when wars happens. Yeah. yeah, and I mean we you did mention quickly in the episode too the the very few times that Russia did seem to try and go back on the offensive, mostly in land battles they were very uncoordinated. Yeah. At one point, you mentioned certain battalions got lost, or they were firing on their own troops because they didn't know who was who. My, so that's my, my my favorite. I forget the name. Of you the know, guy. The, the, this is almost going back to the famous Chinese cannons that didn't work. Yeah, it's 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 just lack of I, lack I of organization. I completely that... forget, and I'm sorry to the audience. I'll probably edit it in who it is, but there's a there's a a lower ranking Russian officer who fought tooth and nail the entire war. And he fought bitterly, and he, it's very impressive, and that's why he's acknowledged so much in this. And I think it's in one of the first battles where there was a guy that was like an associated commander beside him with a hill behind him, and the commander believed for some reason, well, I mean, it's a reasonable belief, he believed that the Japanese could somehow get behind their position, so he proceeded to tell his men that they were all going to withdraw, but then he burnt and destroyed all his ammunition, but he was the reserve force for the other guy so the other guy doesn't receive reserves when he asks for them and he's fighting the japanese bitterly when he goes to find out what's going on all of the reserves and the reserved ammunition and everything is gone and he's just been left in a situation where he could be encircled at any moment and i was like that was basically what described most of this war oh, just no. unbelievable stuff and i can't remember if he died uh, he, he his name shows up in all the major battles and he's a lower ranking uh, commander but it, it's incredible what this guy went through he's he's one of the few guys that he he basically is one of the last guys on Nanshin Hell which is a bloody massacre uh, impressive it's not like the Russians didn't fight their hearts out it's just um, yeah they just mistakes yeah 
Big mistakes. Hey, they're gonna get back at them in World War II. That's very true. It's it's unbelievable. Like um, the 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 IGA in World War II, just before just before World War II hits, they have a border skirmish with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union rips them to pieces so bad that the Japanese Empire basically is like they're so scared that Manchuria at any moment's gonna get taken. And anybody who asks like, oh, you know, parallel universe, how how could the Axis win World War II? And everyone says the same thing, like a board game. Why not? Why doesn't Japan just attack the Soviet Union with Germany at the same time? It wasn't feasible. Even even if they tried, they couldn't cover the distance, and they didn't have the mobility, like the mechanized tanks. Like Japan just didn't have good tanks. There was no way they can compete with the Russians. They would have really messed them up. Russians probably still would have came on top. And it would have taken attention away from elsewhere, anyways. So. I mean, there's so many places that Britain and the Dutch could have held up longer, of which I've been writing endless amounts of scripts for. <laughs> endless amounts. I've done nothing but write scripts for months at this point for other stuff. And yeah. Yeah, well, that's definitely uh, definitely an interesting little conflict. We'll see how that bleeds into World Wars One and Two. And yeah. Oh, um, maybe I'll do some housekeeping. Uh we're all here so now that the russo-japanese war is over basically um, from what i can tell this this youtube channel is going to cover the xinhai revolution of 1911 which is just the the end of the Qing dynasty and then from that point on it's going to be i don't know how many episodes for world war one in asia uh maybe five it'll be a lot of those but after that point very few episodes for the interwar period because I just don't think everyone wants to hear all the political stuff that I could go on and on about. There's so much that happens in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, I will talk a little bit about the 30s because you have to, but we're getting close. And um, once, it, uh, once it hits in 1937, with the we'll call it the Second Sino-Japanese War, I don't know. This channel might be a week to week. It could be just major battles. We're gonna see because it's evolving as it goes. And I'm currently working with other YouTube channels too, and I'm doing a lot of work for them. So there's a lot of stuff on the table. We're gonna see. It's gonna get exciting though very soon. And uh, I can attest, whatever I do for World War One will knock the pants off of all my previous episodes. I'm gonna put a lot of effort into. Like the animations, as you said, uh, the units on the map, what's being done, and well, uh, that just helps. I mean, World Wars One and Two helps a little bit that there's a lot of, you know, North American and English-speaking troops and commanders. So I'm sorry, but they're easier to recognize than Japanese names and Japanese warships, but uh, and just more names that were. F sorry, let me rephrase that. Just more people and events that we're familiar with as Western learners. Whereas, like we've said more than once, as Western learners, we're not really taught Asian history, Japanese history, even European history by by any great lengths. We, we, we get the bare bones basics, and that's... Yeah. So... It's, uh, it's definitely going to get interesting. And um, pretty pretty excited for the future uh as far as the podcast concerned i really do think that this version that we've been doing is going to continue excuse me so after every episode or maybe every couple episodes it becomes more a current we'll continue to just have this discussion period and i really do hope that people subscribe and comment because 
I need the comments. The audio listeners, there's no real way to gauge what you want. So you're going to have to go basically to the YouTube channels and uh, to my YouTube channel and say, like, uh, do you like the speakeasy? Do you like the open format? Do you want to hear more history? Do you think that we should shut the hell up about Godzilla? You know, things yeah. like that. At some point, too, we were talking, uh, we might set up a separate uh, email address, too, for any audio listeners who want to set up. Uh, if you want to just email us in your comments, your questions, we'll try our best to get through everybody, depending on the volume. But, but at least it, it gives us a good idea to gauge for audio listeners and those who aren't on YouTube well, what you're enjoying, what you're not enjoying, and uh, oh, what else God. you'd like to see. I didn't open up the episode with this. I also wanted to thank uh, everyone who watched the Russo-Japanese War episode. It's, I can honestly say, looking at the analytics, it's my best episode. It got the most engagement I've ever seen. And I know it sounds weird. People who've seen like that old Midway episode I made a long time ago. That's kind of a freak accident. But this one, a uh, lot of comments, a lot of engagement. Uh, CTR rate is amazing on it. Um, it's really giving me hope that... I'm going to hit something soon. And I'm getting close to, what, 5K subscribers now. So at 10K, who knows what I'm going to do. I'll probably just take my shirt off and just, you know, finally uh, live up to a lot of the weird comments I get. Remind me not to be here for that episode. It's a, it's a Patreon episode or an OnlyFans if I make one. Oh, dear sweet God. History and feet pics. On that note, this has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out. Take care, guys.